The following message by Pastor Scott is brought to you by Together in Christ. So we kind of told you a little bit last week of what our plans and what our intentions were with this Advent series that we're going to be doing. And listen, I tell you what, it was cool. It was smooth. It was going to be real nice because we had this nice, neat plan laid out to where we had this passage, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, that contained all of the themes that we're going through on Advent. It has peace, hope, love, and joy all wrapped up into 11 verses. And so we, smooth as we are, think, check this out. We're going to put this together. We're going to have a nice little series. And uh, we were reminded, though, this week of that passage in Proverbs, Proverbs 16, 9 says, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And uh, basically what's happened this week, as I've already told you, is that God took our nice, neat, smooth little plan, wadded it up and threw it at us like a curveball. He's like, no, your all's plan stinks. My plan's better. And even though we might understand that, that's what happened. And so what I'm going to be sharing with you is actually what we were supposed to be looking at next week. Because in this passage, Romans 5, 1 through 11, I'm going to be looking at verse 5, but all we've seen so far is verse 1. Pastor Spencer last week did us a, a, great, a great blessing in going through verse 1 and showing us that we can now have an, an assured peace with God because our justification has been accomplished through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And because of that, because we can be justified before him, because we can now have peace with him, we no longer have to stand before him as those that are guilty, but we've been justified. We've been made right. Well, what we find when we go through that next, if we were to keep reading, I'll just read verses one through four now, because if we were to keep reading, we would come to our next word for Advent, which was supposed to be hope this week. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand and we rejoice in, there's our word, hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. There's that word again. We have hope. And then now as we come to verse 5, where we're going to be camping out today, it says, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, I can't really talk to you about the love of God in this passage without you having an understanding of our hope. But I don't really want to camp out there because Pastor Tim's prepared an entire sermon to teach you and to show you in this passage what it means that we have hope, what it means that we have hope in the glory of God, that that, that a character will end up producing hope. But the understanding that you at least need, I think somehow I'm cursed here because the last time I preached... I had to give you context because the person who was supposed to preach before me didn't preach before me, and the same thing has happened now. So I need to give you a little bit of context so you can understand uh, why verse 5 starts with, and hope does not put us to shame, because we can't understand what God's love is without understanding the hope that's present in the situation. Basically, the rundown is this. In verses 3 and 4, Paul, in talking about 
our ability to rejoice. Your version might say glory, verse three. Not only that, but we rejoice. Yours might say we glory in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, and then we have it, character produces hope. What we see here is that suffering brings us through a sanctifying process that ultimately results in a strengthened and an assured hope that we then have. That's the process. That's all I'm going to say about it because there's another sermon coming. Pastor Tim's going to faithfully lead us through that. Then we get to verse 5. And if we're to understand that our sufferings are meant to lead us to a greater and a more sure hope that we can have, we now come to verse 5 when it says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If you're like me, Maybe you hear that verse. I don't know, maybe you were trying to be good and read ahead because you knew where we were going and you wanted to be a little prepared for service. And uh, you, so you read ahead. And maybe, like me, you were, you read that and you said, huh? What does that mean? Paul, what are you trying to say? And there's a lot of words in there and there's some things that the connection between them doesn't seem immediately obvious Listen, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I think when we read the Bible, we read it like this. We read it and we say, yeah, you know, that sounds really good. And I'm sure that there's a lot of good stuff wrapped up into that, but I have no idea what it means. That's okay. We can admit that sometimes. That happens. And my, my goal today, what I hope to do with you is to try to clarify verse five and what it means because there's some connections in verse 5 that don't seem apparently obvious to us, but they are absolutely obvious. And so we're going we're gonna to go through that. And what I plan to do is, just to be very outright with you, is I want to make two connections. There's two connections that need to be made in verse 5. The first connection is, what is, what is the connection between our hope and God's love? There's the connection there. It says in verse 5 again, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love. Huh? What's the connection between our hope and God's love? How does that fit together? We need to explore that. We need to understand that. The second connection that we need to understand in verse 5 is what is the connection between God's love and the Holy Spirit? Because again, the connection between those two things does not seem readily apparent to us. So we need to dive in and understand God's love has been poured in my heart through the Holy Spirit that's been given to me. How does, how does God's love get given to me by the Holy Spirit? What? So we're going to do that. The first connection that we need to make is what is the connection between our hope and the love of God? What's the connection between our hope and the love of God? I think we could summarize it by saying this, that the solidarity or the firmness, the solidarity of your hope rests in the assurance that God loves you. The solidarity of your hope rests in the assurance that God loves you. Think with me for just a moment. How common is the phrase to you, and how many times have you heard this said flippantly, God loves you, or Jesus loves you? Maybe you've heard a, uh, 
a rambunctious teenager just going down the road riding his bike, and all of a sudden he says, God loves you, just trying to be obnoxious. Or some other people trying to just give a little bit of spurt of encouragement to somebody that they know might be down in the dumps, and they say, God loves you. That phrase becomes so ordinary, so common to us, because we hear it so often. You know, we, we think this. I mean, it seems kind of obvious. Of course God loves me. He's God. That's who he is. The Bible says God is love. It's almost like what happens when you have a commute to work and you drive the same way every single day and the buildings and the landmarks that are all around you become so ordinary, so common that you, you stop noticing them. They're, it's almost like they're not there anymore. You see them, you know that they're there, you acknowledge their presence, but you don't give it a second thought as you keep driving past into the office or into the workshop, wherever you're going. But what happens when your commute to work gets rerouted due to construction and you have to take a detour? All of a sudden, you're in a place that's foreign to you. You don't recognize this landmark. You don't know what that building is. You don't know where this street leads. You're just following the detour signs, trying to get to where you need to go. The phrase that God loves you is so ordinary to us, but every now and again, something will happen in life that takes you on a detour to where the phrase that seems so ordinary has all of a sudden become the most foreign concept in our lives. What happens in the context of this passage as he's talking about sufferings that come into your life? What happens when suffering comes into your life? What happens when someone you love more than you love yourself dies? What happens when the sins of your past keep coming back to you and haunt you like you can't get away from them? What happens when the normal grind of life, simple, everyday things, all of a sudden become completely unbearable to you and you don't know what to do? What happens when the person you thought you'd spend the rest of your life with all of a sudden decides that they don't want you anymore? What happens when there just doesn't seem to be any joy in life? What happens when you feel like you have tried absolutely everything and it still hasn't worked? What happens when suffering like that? We're not talking about cheap, trivial things. We're not talking about simple, everyday annoyances in life. We're talking about the deep, hurtful, painful things that we endure in this life. You can't get away from them. They're part of life. And so what happens? Sometimes, sometimes what happens when that comes is we... We say this to ourselves. You might not say it out loud, but you might say it in your mind. And you say to yourself, God, don't you love me? God, I thought you loved me. Don't you care for me anymore? Where is this love that you once professed? And so you're at this place where the simple phrase, God loves you, that was so familiar that you just kept driving by it. Now, you don't even think it's real. It's a foreign concept to you. So what you need for that time, when that question gets raised, the question of God, do you actually love me? Because it doesn't feel like you love me right now. What you need in that time is what I said, is that the solidarity of our hope rests in what? It rests in the assurance 
that God loves you. You need to get through those trying times, those difficult times, assurance. You need assurance, but assurance of something specific, assurance that God does, in fact, love you. How can I have assurance that God loves me despite what's going on in my life and so that therefore I can keep my hope in him? Because here's the deal. If you can be assured that God loves you, that will go a long way in helping you endure trials and sufferings and difficulties in this life. Because you know, even though it is difficult, you know, even though it is the valley, you know that there is a God who stands above you and who stands behind you that loves you. How can you have that kind of assurance? I think what we see here in the rest of our passage going through now verses six through eight, Paul gives us the premier, the the highest possible example that you can ever get of how much God actually loves you. And my hope today is that you can walk out of this absolutely assured that he does love you. Let's read verses six through eight together. It says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What we see here in verses six through eight is simply this. It's a meditation on how the death of Jesus is the ultimate display of God's love for you. It lays out very clearly what our condition is as we stand, as we come to this. It tells us exactly who we are. Look at verse six. It says, for while we were still weak and at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. In the whole passage of Romans chapter five, verses one through 11, you are identified four times. You are described four times. Here's how it describes you. In verse six, like we just read, we see that we are weak, we are ungodly. In verse eight, like I read, it says that you're sinners. In verse four, I'm sorry, in verse 10, the fourth example that we see finally and fully, it describes us as enemies of God. You're his enemy. Yet, the premier example of God's love for you is that Christ died for you when you were weak when you were ungodly, when you were a sinner, when you were his enemy. And just in case it's not clear enough to us, just in case that doesn't settle in a little bit, Paul uses an earthly example to demonstrate how far and above God's love is compared to any love that any of you could ever have for anyone else in this world. Look at verse seven again. Here's his example. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God, so here's the comparison, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sometimes there's a little bit of confusion when we read verse seven because he he has like two different examples there. He says, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. And sometimes people get hung up on this passage trying to figure out, well, what's the difference between a righteous person and a good person? Well, listen, let me just, let me just make this really short for you. Biblical scholars disagree about that. 
They disagree what the differences are between the righteous person and the good person. Some scholars don't even think there is a difference. They just think it's the, uh, a way of restating what he already said. But here's the deal. The point that Paul's trying to make is not wrapped up in the difference between a righteous person and a good person. It's wrapped up in the way that the world expresses love and the way that God has expressed love. That's what's being highlighted. That is what is being showcased. Let me just ask you a question. You can answer it to yourself, but I want you to answer the first thing that comes to your mind. I want that to be your answer. Who in this world are you willing to give up your life for? Who in this world are you willing to die in their place? I guarantee you that for most of you, it was somebody that was probably sitting around you or somebody that is very close to you, somebody in your immediate family probably, a son or a daughter a spouse, a parent, a cousin, a brother or a sister maybe, somebody that you love, somebody that you are close to, somebody that you know well, and somebody that you have a deep relationship and care and affection for. We know that without a doubt, without hesitation, if the opportunity came for you to put yourself in harm's way, you would jump in front of the bullet for them. You're willing to do that. Before my family moved here, uh, we lived in a place called Shepherdsville, Kentucky. It's a place that's just a little bit south of Louisville. Uh, it's in a more country, getting towards more of a rural country area. We lived in Shepherdsville, but I worked in a town called Bardstown, which is about a 30-minute drive away. And uh, Bardstown is getting towards more of the central Kentucky area region where if you've ever been to Kentucky, uh, you can see like the, the rolling, it's the rolling hills of pretty blue grass that they talk about like that. It's really not that pretty, but you know, whatever. It's better than flat, which is here. But uh, I had to drive about 30 minutes one way to get to the office uh, for where I worked at that time. And, uh, you know, there's houses that you pass and they're, they're the nice, you know, it's horse country. There's the nice, you know, wooden fences uh, that are painted white or black. And then there's the, the big hills in the yard and there's the big house in the background of like, you know, somehow this person has made a lot of money through wealth of horses and breeding them or racing them or whatever. And uh, I would drive past several of those houses. And like I said earlier, they became kind of ordinary to me until something changed. One day there was a house on my drive that put a big banner. I mean, this thing was huge, probably about the, the width of these steps. Put it up hanging over right next to the road so that when you're driving, you can see this banner. And here's all it said. Gladys needs a kidney. Gladys needs a kidney. And then the phone number and the blood type that was needed for that kidney. That sign stayed up for probably two or three years. For some reason, Gladys, I'm guessing who lived there was related to that person. Gladys couldn't find a kidney through the process that you go through, like an organ donor type thing. Either that or she didn't qualify or something. I don't know. I don't know exactly. But that sign stayed up for two or three years. You know why? There were probably thousands and thousands and thousands of people that drove by that sign every single day. Throughout the years, there were maybe hundreds of thousands of people that would have driven by that sign and seen Gladys has a desperate need. Gladys needs a kidney. There's, her situation is probably so bad that her life will not be able to continue very long until Gladys gets this kidney. But the sign stayed up apparently because nobody was willing to give a kidney to Gladys. Why? I don't know who Gladys is. 
I don't know why Gladys, I don't even know my blood type. And you didn't really care much to, to find out what your blood type is to see if you even qualify to give a kidney to Gladys. I'm sure there's a lot more that goes into giving kidneys away. I'm making a very simple ordeal apparently, but nobody was willing to give Gladys a kidney because nobody driving by that sign knew who Gladys was. It wasn't a family member. It wasn't somebody that was close to them. It was a person that needed a kidney, and it's apparent that she needed one for the sake of her life. Otherwise, they wouldn't be so desperate to put this huge sign out to get one, right? But everybody passing by that sign is saying, you know, I need my kidney too. Like, I'm pretty young now, yeah, but what happens when I'm older and maybe one of my kidneys goes bad? I'm going to need that other kidney or else I'm going to be in Gladys' spot. Or maybe somebody else in my family might need my kidney one day. I'm willing to, I mean, I guarantee you, any parent in here, you'd be willing to give your kid a kidney if you needed to. They'd probably be willing to give you a kidney if you needed one, but not Gladys. You see, that's the kind of love that we have. The kind of love that we have is we are willing to give up of ourselves to give to people that we know, that we care about, that are in our immediate circle, that we have a deep relationship with. That is totally unlike the kind of love that God has for you. Totally unlike it. Because it's not, this passage doesn't say that you are simply a stranger to God. This passage doesn't simply say that you are unknown to God. This passage says that you are an enemy of God. It says that you hate God. To show the extraordinary nature of God's love, Paul points to who it was Christ was willing not just to give a kidney to, but to give his life up for, to die for. Those words, again, say that you are weak. You want to know what that means? It means you have nothing to offer God. God is not going to benefit in any way from you coming into his family. You are weak. It says that you are ungodly. You know what? You're not even like God. God is totally, is interested in, in totally different things than you are. He likes totally different things than you like. You are not like him in the slightest. It says that you are a sinner. You are a criminal, actually, in God's kingdom. God has given very basic, very simple laws and told us, do this, don't do this. But you're a criminal in his kingdom. You've broken his law. And you're on the run from the law. Not only that, you are his enemy. It's not simply that you are unable to give him anything. It's not simply that you're just not like him. It's not that you're a criminal. It's that you actually hate him. You're his enemy. This is describing who you were. We see back in Romans chapter 1, Pastor Spencer hit on this last week, but back in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, it says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. That's talking about us. That's talking about who we were. Now Listen. I want to be really bold with you for just a second. I think that sometimes there are people who come to church, and, and if you're honest, sometimes you walk out and you think, you know what, man, I just, I get really tired of hearing about sin all the time. I get really tired of hearing about God's judgment all the time. I get really tired about hearing how dead I was in my sins. I get really tired of, of just being told that I'm a bad person over and over and over again. I get really tired of that. And, you know, sometimes it would be really nice, it'd be really nice just for once to be able to walk out of church feeling good about myself. That's all I ask. 
right? It'd be really nice just to be able to walk out of church feeling good about myself for once instead of being reminded of my faults and my failures. And we can say that. But you, you want to know why that's not what we do? Do you want to know why so often it gets brought up, the fact that we are sinners, the fact that we are lawbreakers and criminals, the fact that we hate God? Do you know why that gets brought up? It's because this passage This passage teaches that the assurance you can have to keep your hopes, hope in time of struggle is that God loves you despite who you are. That's why. The reason it gets brought up again and again and again is because that's the only way you can have assurance that God loves you. It's because he loves you despite who you are. Well, maybe you would say, look, Scott, I know my faults and my failings. I I have never come into here thinking that I'm not a sinner. I recognize that I'm a sinner. I just don't want to be constantly reminded of my faults and my failures. I want to be able to walk out feeling good about myself for once. After all, I've been forgiven of my sin. I know of God's love. I don't need to be told about it again. But listen, listen to this. God's love shines the brightest when the heart is its darkest. God's love is ever more clear and ever more evident the more you see just how sinful your heart can be and how sinful it is. So here's the deal. If you walk out of here today with a greater understanding of who you are standing as a sinner before God in need of his mercy and in need of his grace, you wanna know what you also walk out with? A strengthened assurance that God loves you. You haven't fully comprehended the depth and the level of your depravity and your sin if you are not absolutely amazed that God would love someone like you. That's how you can get an assurance. God knows the worst decision that you have ever made. He knows the worst betrayal that you have ever committed. He knows how deeply, just how deeply you have given into your sin and temptation. He knows and he still loves you. Christ still died for you. That's God's love for you. So listen, do you need assurance of God's love today? Do you need assurance that God does love you despite what's going on? God knows all the worst things there are to know about you and he still loves you. That's the person that Christ died for. You see, you didn't get saved just when Jesus knew all the sins that you'd ever committed. He saved you knowing all the sins that you would still ever commit. And he still loved you. He still did that for you. You made a promise to him that you would follow him, that you would be obedient to him, that you would love him for the rest of your life. And he said, I love you, welcome to the family. But in the back of his mind, he, he knew, just like Peter, you would betray him. He knew that, yet still he loved you. The solidarity of your hope rests in the assurance that God loves you. So listen, it's never gonna be my goal that you walk out of here feeling good about yourself because it is going to be much more helpful to you in the trials of life to walk out of here assured that God loves you. That's what will be helpful to you. And so the darker you understand your sin to be, the brighter God's love will become. That's the first connection. What's the connection between your hope and God's love, it's that God loves, God, God's love assures you that you can have hope, that he's still with you. He still loves you despite what's going on. And so you don't have to lose hope. 
Well, what's the second connection? The second connection I said was, what's the connection between the Holy Spirit and God's love? How is the Holy Spirit even playing a a role here? Why did Paul introduce the Holy Spirit into verse 5 when he said, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us? I think the best way for us to try to understand the connection that we see here between God's love that gives us hope and the Holy Spirit here is to just ask a few questions about the structure of this sentence. I know that seems really maybe academic, but it's helpful. Verse 5 has a verb in it, and that is poured. Verse 5, I'll read the whole verse. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured, there's the verb, into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. It's a past tense verb. It's something that's already happened. It has been poured. And so let's just ask a few questions around this verb. What was poured? Well, it says that God's love was poured because God's love has been poured. We need to ask, where has it been poured? It says, God's love has been poured into our hearts. It's being poured into us, into your heart. And then you need to ask the question, how was it poured? What was it poured with? And it says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. But the emphasis given on this word poured is not simply transferring one thing, one thing from this container to another thing in, a, in, a, in, a, in this container. It is the idea that it has been poured in, in terms of overflowing It's not simply the idea of God with a pitcher of lemonade just pouring sweet little lemonade into your heart. It is a water hose hooked up to a fire hydrant that is overflowing your heart with God's love. That's the picture that's being given here. When Paul, and that might seem a little strange, God pouring God's love into my heart, what does that mean? God's love in this sense, when it's pouring God's love, God's love is not an ability That's not what Paul has in mind. It's not that you now have the ability to love the way God loves because his love has been poured into your heart. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about love in the sense that it's a tangible thing. In other words, like a good luck charm to keep you safe, to keep you happy, to keep you going in life. It's not a tangible thing like a good luck charm. But what Paul is addressing here, the way he's talking about God's love and through what we see in this passage is that God's love, as Paul's addressing here, is an assurance. It's an assured knowledge that God feels a certain way about you. God loves you. The Holy Spirit is quite literally pouring into your heart the knowledge that God feels love toward you. That's what it is. That's the connection. Maybe you can imagine a scenario like this. For all I know, maybe you've experienced a scenario like this. But imagine that you have a small child. And as a parent, you're having to do something with that child, and you're having to lead them through something that's a little trial, a little difficult in life um, for them. Some things that seem difficult to children don't seem difficult to us, but it seems to rock their world sometimes when things happen, right? Um, Maybe all that's happening is you have to go. You have to leave for work, and you're going to work, and that just makes that child sad, and they're sad. Maybe you're having to discipline them for something that they've done, for a rule that they've broken or a way that they've rebelled in your home. Or maybe you're just, as a parent, having to lead them through something that's just not really pleasant, something that's not really good. Like maybe you have to take them to the doctor to get some shots 
And they are absolutely terrified of shots because they know that it hurts. They know it's not fun. But you're having to do that. And they are so distraught by this. They are so broken by this, whether you're leaving for work, disciplining them, or helping them endure something that's difficult in life. Imagine they say this to you. Does this mean you don't love me anymore? Oh, how your heart would drop if you heard your child say that to you. Oh, how your heart would drop and it would just bottom out and you would just break because you, you, maybe you're in a hurry to get out the door and they say, you don't love me anymore. Like, what? Yes, I do. And in that moment, you would want to do absolutely anything you could to convey to them and to give them assurance that you do, in fact, love them, despite the fact that you have to go to work, despite the fact that you're having to discipline them, despite the fact that they are just having to do something that is a normal part of life. All you want as a parent, you would do anything that you could to give them assurance that you do love them. That is how the Holy Spirit is functioning in this verse. God has given you the gift of the Holy Spirit partly because he wants to give you an assurance that he loves you. The Holy Spirit is acting as a fire hose pouring God's love into your heart so that in the midst of trial, you can say, I know God loves me. I don't know how I know it, but there is an assurance that he does. You wanna know what that assurance is coming from? It's coming from the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 16, Jesus was teaching his disciples, telling them that someone is coming. He's leaving, but the Holy Spirit is coming. And here's what he says in verse 7 and verse 13 of John chapter 16. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, which is the Holy Spirit, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Then he tells them a little bit about the Holy Spirit. And he says this in verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. Jesus has left us, but he has not left us alone. He has sent the Holy Spirit so that if you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And the amazing thing is this. It says the Holy Spirit does not speak on his own authority. He speaks what he hears and he speaks truth. And you want to know what he's heard from God? I love them. I love them. He loves you. And he's given you the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, so that that message will be given to you over and over and over again so that when the trials come, you will be reminded of God's love for you so that you won't forget that. We see in other places in Scripture of God's amazing love for us. What's the reason we have in 1 Peter 5, 7 that we can cast all of our anxieties on him? It says, because he cares for you. What does Ephesians 2, 4 say? God raised us to new life despite our spiritual deadness. Why did he do that? It says, because of the great love with which he loved us. Why does 1 John 4, 17 and 18 tell us that we do not have to live in fear of God's judgment? It says, because perfect love has cast out fear. Why does John three sixteen say that, John, that God sent to this earth his son? because he loves them, because he loves the world. That's why we celebrate God's love at Advent. We celebrate God's love at Advent because the act 
of God in sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to this earth was done with the full knowledge and the full intention that about 33 years later, He would be sacrificed on a cross on your behalf. And that is the ultimate display of God's love that He could ever show you. And so listen, if you have come here today questioning if God loves you because He feels distant, because you're enduring difficulties, because you don't understand how to keep going, how can God love you? Well, listen, God loves you because he sent his son to die on the cross in your place. And he wants to assure you of that. If you need help being assured of that today, or maybe you're starting to realize for the first time that God loves you, I wanna invite you to respond. There's cards in the pew that's right there in front of you. You can fill that out with your information Kind of write down what you're dealing with, what you want help with. Put it in one of the boxes as you go out, and somebody will get in touch with you this week. But again, like I said, my hope is that you can walk out of this room assured God does love you. And he has shown it to us through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we at times are almost blind to see your love for us. And so, God, we praise you and we thank you for your willingness to send us the gift of your Spirit, to remind us, to pour into our hearts your love for us. Lord, I pray that today your love would have become evident and clear to us so that we Don't have to just walk out of here feeling terrible about ourselves and about our lives and about how wretched we are, but that our wretchedness and the knowledge that you still died for us, you still sent your son Christ for us in the midst of our wretchedness would lead us to sing of how amazing your grace is. Father, you love us more than we could ever love you back. And for that, Lord, we can only step back in awe and in gratitude. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand with us as we sing together? You have been listening to a message by Pastor Scott from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.